What's up, everybody? You are listening to The Greatest Show on Dirt. Today is Saturday, January 27th, 2018, our second recording of the new year. I am here with my buddy John Roberts. You can find him on Twitter at HeyTweetJohn. What's going on, John? How's it going, man? Hey, man. What's up? What's up, Quentin? Dude, it's uh, everything's going pretty good, man. I'm ready for uh, baseball to start. On my last, the last episode I recorded, which was last, uh, I think it was last Saturday, man. I did some venting as I recorded, you know, and um, about how there was no baseball on, and about how I'm being forced to watch a lot of like HGTV and reality TV, and I'm ready for this thing to end and baseball to start. Can they not start spring training a little sooner, man? Can this not happen? Well. Well, I tell you, man, uh, they may have to push spring training back if the uh, pace of the offseason doesn't pick up. You know, the commissioner talks a lot about pace of play. I think he really needs to address the pace of the offseason. This is crazy. You know, you said it because I um, I think it was yesterday I read an article on Bleacher Reporter somewhere that talked about how they're going to have to have a separate spring training for all the free agents. I think they are like 140 free agents that still haven't signed. Right. I, I half expected uh, yesterday when Vince McMahon uh, announced the relaunch of the XFL. <laughs> I really expected him to actually announce that he had bought like an independent league baseball team. No kidding. And he was just going to bring on all these guys. You know, he was just going to bring on J.D. Martinez and you Darvish and uh, Alex Cobb and, and uh, let them like be like he hate me and everything else and play in the independent league till they got a major league contract. Yeah. The way things are going. No kidding. Um, now, I think the first question we're going to start with, which is one that you had sent me on Twitter, um, and it's when I read it, I was like, that's a really good point. So here's what we've got right now, and this has been a right. lot of the – I don't know if it's an excuse just as much as like a hypothesis, right, as to why this is happening. Um, if free agents right now – free agents are holding up the market – because teams just aren't willing to commit long-term. So what a lot of people are thinking is, hey, these guys are 31 and 32 years old, so we don't want to sign them to five, six, seven-year deals. So right now, if that's the case, then why are the trades that are happening in lieu of free agency so lopsided? Because as you said, logic would dictate that these short-term deals for these impact players like Andrew McCutcheon and Garrett Cole and Marcelo Zuna, with probably the most recent exception, of Christian Yelich, which the Marlins got a pretty good package for him, but those three trades seem to be pretty lopsided. Why aren't those impact player trades getting more on free agency in this leery free agent market? What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't get it because you, the way I kind of see it, and I think what logic would tell you is that it would be a pendulum that swings. And if teams are going out there, and I think that's also kind of what's contributing to the free agent lull, is that teams that have needs have went out and filled them via trade, which means that these you know free agents have uh, less potential spots to land. Um, you would think that teams that have assets to trade would be able to get more out of them because you're able, you know, you're able to say this guy signed long term. You have arbitration. You know, you you're this is a short term deal. There's not a lot of money involved, um, so you have maximum financial flexibility here going forward. Uh, so I really don't understand why. I mean, you look at the Pittsburgh trades. I mean, basically, Andrew McCutcheon. Say what you want to about his decline, but even with the decline, he's still a really good ball player. And uh, I mean, they basically got Andrew McCutcheon for a couple spare pieces. 
and, and that blew me away. And then when you look at the Garrett Cole trade, when you look at packages that have been used to get starting pitching like Sonny Gray last summer, and then when you look at the, you know, when you look at the, the Cole package, uh, it's like, you know, the Garrett Cole package is like, really? Like that's all they had to give up to get an arm talent like that. I don't, I don't get it. I really don't get it. Uh, other than the fact that Neil Huntington chose to, uh, break that thing apart a year too late. I mean, think about it. This for pirate fans, you know, last, last summer, they walked away from the package that uh, the White or that the White Sox ultimately got for Adam Eaton. The Nationals put that on the table for McCutcheon, and Neil Huntington walked away from that, only to come back a year later and get a fourth outfielder and a reliever. Yeah, and those guys that the Giants sent to Pittsburgh for Andrew McCutcheon, McCutcheon, they're not notable prospects, and I don't believe they're expected to make any sort of impact at all. But to go back probably like a minute, um, yeah, when you look at the Garrett Cole trade, which you had just mentioned, um, it doesn't seem like teams right now want to sign Jake Arrieta because there are a lot of question marks on his age and really just his command and control. And it's kind of like that with you, Darvish, as well, with like a 2015 Tommy John surgery, um, a postseason blow up. You know, that postseason didn't go very well at all. So you would have thought that, when you're about to deal Garrett Cole to the Houston Astros who have, and I don't think I remember the names of the two really good prospects, but the Astros have at least two really good prospects that might be and to some accounts, the top 15 in all of baseball. You could have really pushed that if you were the Pittsburgh pirates and said, Hey, if you really want Garrett Cole, because we know you do not want to go out and spend a hundred plus million on Arietta and, you Darvish, then let's really get something back for this. And the return that the Pittsburgh Pirates got for McCutcheon and for Garrett Cole wasn't enough at all. And I really, really agree with you on the Andrew McCutcheon thing. And so, and I wrote a, a piece on this that really I don't think I even published yet on Andrew McCutcheon. And here's my take on that about how valuable I think he could be. Um, he played at such a high caliber. You had this eight win player. A phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. Is it crazy to think that he's been so good for so long that at some point with pitchers throwing harder than they ever have and attacking Andrew McCutcheon a little bit different, is it crazy to say that he could have had a bad one to two years and could completely rebound next year? Well, see this, when you really dig into Andrew McCutcheon, um, and what he's done the last two seasons, I think because he was so good before that, you know, this guy's still a three-word player. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and you don't just get three-word players off the street. Now, given it's a five-word decline, and, and that's kind of staggering, but when you look at his contract and what he's making and the fact that, you know, in that lineup, he's it. I mean, he really is, you know uh, – Marte was hurt and then, you know, they had the PED suspensions and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, you've got, uh, Harrison, but other than Mm -hmm. that, I mean, Josh Bell is Josh Bell has so much swing and miss. I don't think, you know, I don't think you're really, I I don't think you're really worried about Josh Bell hitting, you know, after McCutcheon. And I just don't think you, you know, I, I, 
I, of course, I'm, you know, I'm not a Pirates play-by-play guy, but I don't think that McCutcheon was really getting a whole lot of opportunity to really hit, uh, especially the last two seasons. So, yeah, no. but when but when you look at like what he did last year, you know, he hit 280 with a, a 360 with a 363 OBP. Mm-hmm. Okay, you take those numbers. That's almost exactly what Dexter and and then the home runs, twenty eight home runs, eighty eight RBIs. Compare that to Dexter Dexter Fowler, his last year in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He hit more home runs with more RBIs, had the same bat even average, and and about the same uh, on base percentage. Yeah. And you know everybody was in love with Dex. You know everybody was in love with Dex, and he got an eighty three million dollar contract from the Cardinals. Basically the same numbers. You know, uh, McCutcheon, you know, kind of got tossed to the curve for nothing. So, and and with his overall war number, a lot of that is defense, defense in center field. Yeah. PNC is not the easiest place to play center field. Um, but if he's not a center fielder anymore, he hit 28 home runs with 88 RBIs and got on base 36% of the time. That's a pretty good ball player. Oh, yeah, and throw that in in combination with just who he is as a human being, a great clubhouse presence. I mean, there's no doubt they got him for a steal. But let me ask you this. So with the question you sent me, which is this phenomenal take, and like I said when we were when we talked at the beginning of this, dude, I'm going to call you the professor from now on, man. Like this, And the sad part about me calling you the professor is like I'm Gilligan, and without you, this SS Minnow is going to sink, man. But let me ask you this. So why do you think that these trades aren't reeling anything back? Like, is it just the teams saying, like, oh, let, let me figure out how I can say this real quick. Hold on one sec. So, like, these returns on these trades, they're getting so much less than what they should be. Like, is this a data game? You know, are, are the upper upper levels of these teams looking at data and going, ah, these guys probably aren't worth it? Is this have something to do with teams valuing young talent and they're just getting away with it? Because somehow what we're seeing is like all of these teams collectively are just playing hardball. So why is it that these trades aren't getting anything back? I think part of it is uh, you've basically got at least a third of uh, Major League Baseball in the tank right now. Uh, you know, you look at what the Cubs did, you look at what the Astros did. And I think there's, you could probably name them 10, 12 teams right now that are following that model Mm -hmm. and are in the first year or two of that process. So they're not buyers. They're not going to be about buyers. They're not, you know, they're not there to acquire talent. They're actually going the other way. So you shrink that pool of, of, uh, teams that are actually out there looking to acquire, uh, you know, so there's that aspect of it. And then when you look at a position player like Andrew McCutcheon, now you have to find the, the you know, the 66% of baseball that's left. Uh, how many of those teams need outfielders? Uh, then how many of those teams aren't up against, you know, the luxury tax? Because as good as McCutcheon is, he does come with a $14 million AAV, which yep. counts against, of course, counts against your tax number. So there's that aspect of it. And then, honestly, what I kind of wonder specifically, like with McCutcheon uh, and Ozuna too, is that you have teams that have that that need a bat, like the Boston Red Sox. 
that just seemingly are willing to just sit around and wait on J.D. Martinez. Um, and honestly, I, you know, if you're the Red Sox, you know, they've obviously made an offer to Martinez and they're there. But if you can go out and get Marcelo Zuna instead or get Andrew McCutcheon instead and save your money, why wouldn't you? That's, I mean, that's the part of it. Honestly, uh, professor or not, I feel like I'm holding an empty coconut. I, I can't explain it, what yeah. is going on, uh, especially with what a premium there is on pitching. The uh, the Garrett Cole trade was really confounding to me. I mean, I guess they got they got quantity. I mean, they did get a couple of major leaguers, um, but they didn't get what you would have thought they would have got. Uh, I don't get it, man. I really don't. Uh, I'm like I said, I'm holding a couple empty coconuts here. Yeah, well, I know that the Astros have a much much better prospects than what they gave up for Garrett Cole. And it was like, it was well known that there was no chance that the Pirates were going to get those prospects. And it just seems like teams are putting their foot down and saying, hey, we value our young talent and you're not getting our top guys no matter what. But let me ask you this. So part of what you said was super interesting because now it's like your level of players, right? Your level of competitors has cut down by a third. You know, what does this stuff do to baseball long term? Because if I'm a Pittsburgh Pirates fan... There's no other word to put it. I'm pissed. I'm mad that my team, I feel like they've sold off way too short. You know, they had Mark Melanson and Garrett Cole and Andrew McCutcheon, all these guys, Neil Walker, all these guys they let go because under like this guise of rebuilding. But it sounds like I know when the Pirates were competing and, you know, making their 98 win wild card runs, they weren't making additions when other teams were that were ready to win. What do you think this does to baseball long-term? Like is, is MLB going to have to put some sort of rule in place? Because I know, I think it may be yesterday or the day before it came to light that the players association has filed a formal complaint with the way that the Marlins and the Pittsburgh pirates are spending their revenue sharing money. What's MLB going to have to do, in your opinion, to, I mean, do they just let this thing ride out with competition going down and the free agent market stalling? Um, Because one thing that makes me nervous about this is, you know, when CBAs have to be renewed and if there's some sort of like work stoppage or something like that, that scares me to death because the sport I love, you know, was really injured from the 1994 strike and we don't want that to happen again. What's baseball doing in a situation like this? Well, I don't, you know, you, you can't make somebody go buy what they don't want to buy. Um, and two, for instance, like the, the pirates, uh, like the pirates, right. I think, I think the pirates and even the Royals are kind of a perfect example of in today's, in today's baseball, um, you are either going for it or you are tearing it down. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot be in the middle. You cannot get caught in the middle. And that's what happened to the Royals for sure. And that's what's happened to the pirates. Mm-hmm. What's for me, I mean, the pirates tried to do the thing a couple summers ago at the deadline where they bought and they sold. So they traded Mark Melanson and they got Rivera back, which was, you know, it's a huge, he's a huge piece of their bullpen. He's obviously, I mean, to get him for three months of Mark Melanson, they did really well. Uh, but, then they come into the, you know, they, they come into the off season last year. That was the time to trade Andrew McCutcheon. That was the time to trade Garrett Cole. 
but they try to get a little bit too cute. And in a small market like that, you either have to be the way baseball is now, you either going to be full on tearing it down or you're going to be full on building it. And that's to go back even further, you know, when they were winning, they weren't using their prospects to add. Uh, they didn't go get a big arm or a big bat no, when they needed it. And they, and they settled for mediocrity. At least, you know, like with the Royals, I mean, when they were ready to win, they went out, they made the Cueto trade, um, you know, and that's that's the model. And, I mean, what the Cubs did with the role of Chapman and then uh, with Quintana last year, that's what you have to do. When you're in your window, uh, when you have cheap talent, uh, when you have cheap talent and you have, you know, you have the ability to go out and make moves, that's what you have to do because that window will close on you. And as far as major league baseball as a whole, and what's kind of going on with this free agent market and teams not spending and, and things getting held up. I honestly kind of also topic to the question you asked, but I think there's an undercurrent here that I think is driving a lot of this. And it's the, the financial evolution and the financial future of the game. Mm -hmm. I've thought a lot about this and I put a lot of thought into it. If you're a major league baseball franchise in 2018, what is your, what is your primary source of revenue? Do you know what that is? I mean, it might be TV deals. It, I feel like TV deals are pretty huge. That's, that's it. It's okay. not, it's not ticket sales. It's not ticket sales. It's not concessions. It's not licensing. It's TV. And if you're a team that either has an expiring large TV deal or you're a team that has, you know, that is waiting to get that large deal. There's got to be a lot of, there's got to be a lot of question and a lot of worry, angst about whether you're going to get that next big TV deal. Because when you look at what, what's happening to TV as a whole, uh, it's changing, it's evolving. Mm-hmm. With, as technology and the internet has gotten better, people are cutting the cord. People are walking away from cable. They're walking away from satellite. Uh, people don't even watch terrestrial TV anymore. And, and that's what those deals, you know, those deals and that, that finance system was based on an antiquated TV system from 30 years ago. And for, a te- you know, for, for teams, the marketplace, the consumer is headed to the streaming media well, the teams, they don't own the rights to their own streams. That's Major League Baseball as a whole. Okay. So, you know, teams, it's, it's really hard to project four, five, six years from now what your revenues are going to look like because your primary revenue stream may not even be there or it may be entirely different. In the direction where it looks like it's headed, you don't have a way to control the rights of because that's owned by Major League Baseball as a whole. So I think that that, you know, I think that that plays a lot into what's happened, happening with free agency. Uh, how can you, you know, how can you commit to a six-year contract at $27.5 million a year uh, when you don't know that the revenue, you don't, you don't know the revenue is going to be there six years from now at the end of that contract. And you play that against, you know, the things that everybody talks about, 
uh, you know, the luxury tax number and the new penalties for going over the luxury tax. So it's like, not only do you have to negotiate this contract with this player, you've got to be the winning bid. Okay. Now, if you're over the luxury tax, you've got to pay the luxury tax on that, which goes to teams that aren't trying to win mm-hmm. like the Marlins and the pirates. So then you're paying that luxury tax penalty and then, you know, owners and teams have spent a lot of money on advanced analytics about free agency that tells them that they may do all right on the front half of that deal where they may not, but they're certainly not going to do well in most cases on the back half of that contract. So you add that on top of, Hey, I'm going to have to pay a lot of money to get this guy. Then I'm going to may probably going to have to pay at, whether it's this year, next year, or three years into this, I'm going to have to pay luxury tax on this. Oh yeah, and by the way, he's gonna. I'm gonna be paying for his decline. Oh yeah, and by the way, now there's draft pick compensation. I'm gonna lose draft picks. I'm gonna lose assets, which gonna set my franchise back, and I'm gonna lose international signing signing bonus money. Mm-hmm. And I think teams look at that, and then you put that cherry on top of the angst as far as TV money and projecting that. And I think that's how we've got what we got. And what's going on right now, I really believe that's, I believe it has way more to do with, uh, with advertising dollars and with TV deals than people realize. Okay, wow. I'm going to have to try to – I'm in my head right now. I'm still trying to unpack everything you said. I know you're right 100%. I, so first of all, I never have even thought of that about – the uh, you know the marketplace the market being so volatile in the way that Major League Baseball gets their money because you're 100 percent right on the cutting the cord thing because I mean barely it you're the people now that don't even have cable and satellite and that number is just getting higher and higher so yeah I guess if you are a franchise that cares about the long term profit of it then yeah you're not gonna go out and you know, have this Albert Pujols-esque contract on Jake Arrieta. For one, because paying him $30 million a year when the money you've got coming in that you're not unsure of during the span of that's got to be real bad. But also, you know, and I'll use Arietta again as the example, the advanced data is not kind to him at all. And these front offices are smarter than they've ever been. So why why would I go out and sign an Arietta at $30 million when I know I'm going to get three years out of him, and that's going to hamstring me so much. And, I mean, you know, teams need that money to develop young talent and all of that. But the – Well, and what Daddy used to tell me, you don't, you, you don't write checks you know you can't cash. Yeah, and you had to really think, like, how long is this stuff going to happen? Because anyone who's a baseball fan, you know, we've seen this song and dance forever – Guy gets a long-term deal, doesn't perform at the end of it. And, like, I mean, you know, Zach Granke signed that huge deal three years ago. There was, like, 200-plus million. And you can see the writing on the wall with those deals. And, you know, if you're a fan of that team or someone else, you know, how many times have you said, oh, they paid him that much money? Well, that was stupid. And it's now it's almost well, right. like and these right teams the, are doing right what we would want point. them to do. And, yeah, it's crazy. Right to that point about Zach Grinky, what was the catalyst of the Grinky deal? Arizona's big new TV contract. Ha-ha. I mean, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, they said, hey, we've got this money. It's guaranteed. It's going to be coming in. Let's spend it. Let's live a little. But I think right now in 2018, uh, 
entertainment, television and entertainment as a whole is shifting. The way that we consume uh, baseball or anything else is shifting. And I th- there's a lot of really smart people in front offices that are trying to read the tea leaves and see what that means as far as an economic model. And like I said, the, the very specific thing is uh, you talk about MLB.TV. I'm a subscriber. That's, you know, I'm a, I'm a Cubs fan who lives in Southern Kentucky. That's how I watch Cubs baseball. I live in the Cincinnati market. I, the only time that I will watch a Reds broadcast is if the Cubs are playing the Reds. And, and I'm a guy, I still have a satellite dish, but I can't tell you how many people, you know, especially, you know, thirties, mid thirties below don't even have, don't have satellite, don't have cable. And for instance, like I said, I subscribe to MLB TV as a Cubs fan. That's how I consume the Cubs. I buy a one team subscription for the Cubs because that's what I watch, right? Well, the Cubs don't get that money. Major League Baseball Advanced Media gets that money, which they just sold. So teams looking forward and, and you know, just think about how much uh, streaming, streaming live sports, uh, streaming television, think about how much better that's gotten in four years. Think about how advanced that's gotten in four years. So then just think about where that's going to be four years from now. I mean, it's only getting better. It's as clear as day. You can watch it right now. Um, but my so at some point, at some point in the collective bargaining agreement, a lot of this stuff is going to have to change because players aren't getting paid, though, right? Because right now, um, with teams not wanting to spend. Well, oh, go ahead. But here's the deal. I mean, last summer they renewed the CBA, and I think. Uh, what is it? Six years. So there's five years for this to play out. I mean, and if, and if ultimately the pie shrinks, the pie shrinks with TV revenues being a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, it's real. it's really hard to sign a CBA last summer. And then, you know, a year into it, stomp your feet and, and be like, Oh no, what'd you guys do? Yeah. Hold, yeah. Stomp your feet and hold your breath. You know, this is a deal you guys signed on for. I don't know why the players agreed to the luxury tax line and for all the luxury tax penalties. I don't know why they did that. Um, They certainly, I think they certainly are kicking themselves now because it forced, it's forced teams, it's forced owners in a lot of cases, I think, to actually be responsible with their money. And Major League Baseball players aren't used to owners being responsible with their money. But I begin to wonder, though, if it's even the luxury tax or if it's just more of, like, teams getting smarter. Because, like, right now, as far as, like, teams and, like, Major League Baseball and their individual teams and their overall profits that a team makes, players are getting less and less of that money now. I think it's, like, 39% of the total revenue is what's actually going to the players versus at one point it was, like, high 50%. So – like, is it really the luxury tax the problem, or is it just the game's changing and the market's changing and data says it's not intelligent to spend a billion gazillion dollars? Because, you know, when you look at the Cubs and when they built their team, the biggest trades they make while they were building the team 
was Anthony Rizzo and Addison Russell, probably. And then all they had to do was pick up a role as Chapman for a half year. And, heck, they got a World Series, you know. Um, well, I, I, I would say that the, the other professor, Kyle Hendricks, might have been a bigger trade than Addison actually, Russell. Actually, you're probably 100% right. Probably a bigger deal than Addison. Yeah. But, uh, no, well, I, so I think it, it's all based on market, right? Uh, obviously, you know, because when you look at that big overall Major League Baseball pie and you add all those money, all those dollars together, and then you add up all the free agent, the contract money, and you say, hey, that comes up to 39%. I don't think that really gives you a clear picture because you look at the big markets, uh, you know, Los Angeles is spending. You know, the mm-hmm. Dodgers are spending. The Yankees have spent. The Chicago Cubs have spent. And they're all going to um, spend you know, next year with that free agent class. They're going to spend right. next I mean, year. And that might be a lot of what they're really priming yeah. for because, I mean, am I going to hamstring my organization to sign you, Darvish, for five years when I've got the money to afford Bryce Harper? And, yeah, Bryce Harper is going to cost a lot of money, but he's also going to bring in a ton of money, you know? Right. Right. And that's – but I think it's all by market, right? And I think, for instance, the and this is like kind of going the other night with the Lorenzo, Lorenzo Cain deal mm-hmm. that kind of I wondered about from Milwaukee. You look at Lorenzo Cain's age, and you look at his skill set. Uh, you know what? As a baseball player, what leaves you first? Your legs. Oh, yeah. And to a player like Cain, his legs are very important. And when those go boy, that contract is going to become an, an arbitrage. Oh, yeah. It really is because, you know, how many CNI grounders that he used to be able to leg out are going to be out, mm-hmm. you know, three years from now. And you look at that batting average drop, you, re, you look at that on-base percentage drop, he's not going to be a center fielder in three years. He's going to have to move to a corner. And now you have a corner outfielder who doesn't get on base hit for average or have power that you're paying $16 million a year. And yeah, then now you have Albert Pujols, Chi- you know? Right. I mean, the Chicago Cubs could afford, you know, the Chicago Cubs can afford to pay for Ben Zobra's decline. Yep. I don't know that the Milwaukee Brewers can afford to pay for Lorenzo Cain's decline. Mm-hmm. And I still can't figure out why they signed Lorenzo you know? Cain because with the addition of Yelich, I want to say they'd probably have a pretty decent – like. Domingo Santana, I think that's the guy's name. I think he had 30 home runs as an outfielder last right. year, and I'm going to say he's 25. I don't know why. I mean, they- it, it's puzzling to me. You know, it's puzzling to me. I mean, the Brewers blew 25 saves last year. Yeah. And Jimmy, Jimmy Nelson, who's arguably the best starter, is hurt. You know, yeah. and other than going and getting a couple warm bodies, they've done nothing to address their pitching. Uh, and the guys that they had in the bullpen, like Swarzak, who actually could get guys out, yeah. are gone. I do not know why they let so, him go. I would have paid Swarzak damn near Wade Davis money before I paid Wade Davis Wade Davis money to keep Anthony Swarzak in my opinion. With John. <laughs> I kid you, well, when that deal signed and Colorado signed Wade Davis, yeah, I had a clever tweet. Maybe I thought I'd get some likes out of it. But like two days later, I'm scratching my head going, Anthony Swarzak, you could have got him for half the price and it would have been a good payday for him. Why don't you pay that guy and keep him? Because that's what the Milwaukee doesn't have is pitching. And if, you know, you're a Cubs fan, I'm a Cubs fan. Am I concerned about the Brewers? 
No, because they can't pitch. They don't have anything. Josh Hader is real good, but, like, their starters are pretty much, like, you've got Chase Anderson and then, like, little Zach Davies who basically look like – he looks like Craig Council's son, you know, but skinnier and smaller. Well, Zach Davies, he's, he's, a, he's a poor man's Kyle Hendricks. He is. That's what they say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Kyle Hendricks is a poor man's Greg Maddox. What do you think Kyle so. Hendricks is going to do this year? Is he going <laughs> to perform? Do you think Kyle will pitch like a number one this year? I, I I do. I mean, look, which I was a pitcher, so, I mean, I can wax poetic, but what Kyle does is, I mean, he's he, like Jamie Moyer, like Greg Maddox, guys who can do that can pitch forever. Mm-hmm. And he he moves in and out. He moves up and down. He changes eye level. He changes velocity. Uh, nobody ever squares him up. Nobody ever makes solid, solid contact. And it's like, as long as he's in that groove and he's hitting his spots, he's hard to hit. And the thing is, he does that at 26, 27. He's going to do that at 37. Oh yeah. So yeah, I do. I do think, I do think that, I think you kind of saw the passing of the torch with John Lester last year, kind of given, given Hendricks a nod. I do think Kyle's going to pitch to the top of that rotation. I would not be surprised if Kyle Hendricks is your opening day starter uh, or and or opens up Wrigley. I would not be surprised at all. I think he should, and um, I think he's got to. He's a fine whiskey in a barrel aging in Kentucky, my friend, and I think we both agree on that. That is your future. I, 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 yeah, I mean, right now – uh, right now, I would be. I'm not sure who his agent is. I think it may be Casey Close, but I mean, right now, I would be getting that thing done. Uh, I would be getting. I would be eating up his arbitration years, and I would be getting some. And I would be getting him three, four years on the back end. Because the thing you know about Kyle is he's probably not going to have Tommy John surgery. He's no. probably not going to have to have thoracic out- outlet surgery on his shoulder. Like he's going to go out and he's going to pitch every year. And I, like I said, if I'm, if I'm Theo Epstein, if I'm Jed Hoyer, that is definitely a horse I bet on. And I would right now, well, he's in his first year of arbitration and he still wants to get a payday. I mean, just like they did with Anthony Rizzo, you got to go get that thing done. You got to get, you got to get him signed to a contract where, Four years from now, everybody's scratching their head and like, man, why did this guy sign that contract? You know, just like we do with Anthony Rizzo. Yeah, well, it'll be a good one. Um, I mean, I'm looking at Greg Maddox's numbers right now. He had a he had a 15 win year when he was 40, and you know there were no injuries with that guy, like huge, like thoracic outlet or Tommy John. And Kyle Hendricks is a guy that you could sign a seven year deal for and say, yep, we're good with that. Oh. Uh- hundred um, percent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, and he's, and he's pitched in the postseason. He's been huge in the postseason. I mean, look, I mean, I think that's, that's obvious. Uh, he's I mean, I think that's an obvious, uh, that Kyle Hendricks is going to be there. He's a big part of the future. And perhaps Kyle Hendricks is the re- confidence in Kyle is the reason that they're not rushing out to replace Jake Arrieta because maybe, Maybe the way they see it, they have Jake's replacement, and he's already in the rotation. Should the Cubs even sign a pitcher? Like, the hot rumor now is, like, you know, the Cubs are the favorite to get you Darvish. Should the Cubs spend this type of money 
this year on this free agent class? Should they do that? I would because – Wait, you said you would or you wouldn't? Oh, I would. You I would. would, okay. Absolutely, I would. Because And the, and the reason is this. Um, when you look at the Chicago Cubs, they're – the best part of that team, the deepest part of that team, is their young hitters, and they're not paying those guys anything right now. Mm-mm. But that's not going to last forever. And we, baseball does exist in a plane in which you know that pendulum swing, right? Especially with the luxury tax. So right now is the time you should be paying pitchers to pitch, while you're not paying your hitters nothing. So that when it does come time to pay those hitters, you've had time to develop young pitching. So that now, hopefully, you're young pitching, you're not paying peanuts because you're paying your hitters. Yeah. And you cycle it through like that. So, yeah, I would, I definitely, I definitely would reach out and try to get a big arm. And really, with free agent pitching, I think what's going on is you have, there's only, you know, a certain amount of teams that are really looking to add a, a top of the rotation, a top three above starting pitcher, starting pitcher. I think you've got the Cubs for sure. The Yankees, if they decide that they can afford it, uh, the Cardinals, perhaps the twins yeah. and the brewers, although the brewers may be out now that they've spent all their money, but you know, and it's like they're playing a game of musical chairs and they're walking around these free agent pitchers, you know, these teams, you know, you've got Jake Arrieta, Lance Lynn, uh, Alex Cobb, and you Darvish, and these teams are walk, you know they're walking around and they're perfectly content to keep listening to the music. But I gotta believe that when the music stops, the Cubs are gonna find themselves sitting in one of those chairs. It's I not, really do. Yeah, I think so. Why in the world? I why? How do you think that this is happening? Because it seems to me like. There are a lot of teams out there that could use a starting pitching. How are all these teams staying so confident and sitting back? Because, like, I think of a team like the Los Angeles Angels, right? I think now, I don't know if they could do this in standard or luxury tax or not, but let's pretend either way we don't care. How come the, and the Angels could use a starter? Because it seems like they've really reinforced their offense and their defense, right? Their position players, they've reinforced. But, like, if you're the L.A. Angels and could use a starting pitching, or if you're the Boston Red Sox and really need that power hitter because your division rival, who you're going to have to get through to really go deep in the postseason, just got Giancarlo Stanton, how are these teams all staying confident and sitting back with their poker face? How's this all happening at once? I, uh, well, I think you're wanting me to say the big C word. Oh, well, that's the, do it. well, that's the question I was going to ask you. Listen, <laughs> I don't think, and I've bounced around in my head both ways on this. At one point I'll look and say, oh yeah, there totally could be collusion because how are all these teams doing this at once? But then, then again, you've got all these really intelligent Yale and Harvard kids who are in these front offices going, well, Jake Arietta's numbers tell me he's lost two, three miles an hour off his velocity. And I just don't trust that decision. And I feel like when I'm crunching the number and looking at the data, there's less risk in me trying to develop uh, 11th rounder like Kyle Hendricks and then taking Jake Arietta. Um, I think the data is kind of big in that that would tell me maybe that there's not collusion. But if I still can't help to say if I were like a, 
a Los Angeles Angels fan or a Boston Red Sox fan, I wouldn't be a little pissed that my teams weren't making that move right now. Now, granted, free agent isn't over yet, but I struggle sometimes now wondering if teams care more about winning or if it's just like they care a little too much about revenue and they're already completely loaded, you know? Like part of me wants to get a little bitter and say, oh, all those owners are loaded and us fans pay so much money going to baseball games and buying merch and all this stuff. Like why aren't they spending, you know? And I don't know whether to be mad or whether to say, oh, well, they're smart data guys and I trust the process because my team just won the World Series in 2016, you know? I don't know what to think about the big C word either. I really don't. I don't think that there's collusion. I think the owners, I think the players signed a bad CBA, you know, with like the luxury tax and the amount of control. That well, players I would say, I would say, yeah, I would say the owners really winners. And I, I was yeah. going to make the point that the only time, you know, you're maybe it is correct to say, and I'll admit the owners colluded, the owners colluded when they got the players to agree to that CBA. Oh yeah. They knew it would benefit them. They knew what they were doing. And, and and that's, I think that's where you're at. And that, you know, so when you look at this free agent class and the fact that these guys haven't got the dollars that I think most expected they would get just based on the past, when you look at all these guys individually, though, they all have warts. You know what? I think that's they all 100% have warts. True. And I, and I think, you know, collectively, um, teams have learned from their mistakes and from the mistakes of others to really look at those warts. Oh yeah. To really care about those warts. And, and I think that plays into it too. I mean, just like Jake, um, you know, obviously there's a lot to love about Jake Arietta, but when you look at the last three seasons, when you look at war, when you look at the advanced statistics and the advanced analytics, there has been a steady decline, mm-hmm. uh, since the Cy Young year. I mean, that's, that is not refutable. There has been a steady decline. That is where that arrow is moving. And then when you look at Jake, his warts per se are the loss in velocity. Part of what made 2015 Jake area, 2015 Jake area is that he threw, he had, he threw those pitches with so much velocity, with so much spin and so much movement. He was just unhittable. And he was able to walk, you know, and he was able to throw strikes because that's the thing about Jake. He had, he, he has that period where he will go through a ball game and throw 12 pitches and not be able to throw a single strike. Oh, yeah. And then he kind of, he kind of gets it back together. He kind of gets it back together and he does his thing. Well, when you're doing that with a velocity drop, now uh, your margin for error is, is just that much smaller in Jake has, you know, it's been talked about ad nauseum, that crossfire delivery. Well, a big part of what allows Jake to have that crossfire delivery and put so much torque on that ball and be able to control it and be able to place it is his core strength. I mean, it's all the Pilates and the yoga and everything else that Jake does. It's his core strength. Well, as he gets older, what's going to happen to that core strength? It's going to weaken. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, look. And I know I, I sound like a Jake hater, but I mean, I man, I love Jake Arietta, but I don't love 36-year-old Jake Arietta. And I don't love 36-year-old Jake Arietta making $27.5 million. Oh, not for a pitcher. For uh, a guy that might go out there and give you a four-and-a-half earned run average right. and a 1.4 right. win. And like, because, yeah. 
And like, and I could tell you if I was the Boston Red Sox, if I was Dave Dombrowski, I would, I would walk away from J I would walk away from JD Martinez um, because you can't pay, you know, you have three center fielders, your outfield is full. You can't pay a guy that kind of money to DH. And their outfield and, is really strong defensively, right? <clears throat> well, yeah, it's really strong defensively it's and it's, and they're all great. Hit, and they're all very good hitters. I mean, there's not a weak stick out mm-hmm. there. So I, I mean, and so basically you'd be bringing in JD Martinez and paying him all that money to be a DH. And I can tell you right now, if I were Dave Dombrowski, I would go now that Milwaukee, they need pitching and they have a glutton in the outfield. I would go to Milwaukee and I would say, Hey, drew Pomeranz, drew Pomeranz for Domingo Santana Done. straight up. Done. What up? Yeah. What up? And then, and then after you acquire Santana to be your DH, I would take like a half of the JD, JD Martinez money, and I would go straight to Alex Cobb, and I would sign him to fill Drew Pomeranz's spot in the rotation. And it makes him, a, it, it makes him, and a it's cheaper than signing JD Martinez, and it makes him a better team by adding two pieces instead of just adding one. Yeah, that's a phenomenal idea. I call. Like J.D. Martinez, he's like my baseball card guy, right? So if you were to look on the back of anyone's baseball card, like you get like the satisfaction of seeing like their whole entire career on the back of a baseball card. And you'll see a bunch of players maybe you really haven't even heard of or thought of in 10, 15, 20 years. And you'll look at the back of the baseball card and go, oh, they had like that one really good year. That's crazy, right? Like I recently looked on the back of a Ken Harrelson baseball card, and there was one year where he like was maybe like a I love the Hawk dude. Um, even though like I'm a Cubs fan, and I think Hawk Harrelson hates the Cubs, I still love to listen to him call games. Listen, last year, him and Wimpy Tom Pachork called a Sox Mariners game, and I watched the whole entire weekend series from the first inning to the ninth inning because those old guys are the is to listen to when they call a baseball game. But where I was getting at with this is with the free agent class, like having a lot of warts, listen, J.D. Martinez hasn't always been a 300 hitter with 45 home runs. We don't know if that's going to replicate no, he, or not. You and, Darvish, he, and he doesn't stay in the lineup. Yeah, and exactly. he doesn't stay in the lineup. So you just don't know what to do with that. So the free agent class, like even though like I can look at Arietta's 2015 and go, oh, that might be Bob Gibson-like. Well, Jake Arrieta ain't Bob Gibson, right? And you, Darvish, no, no. yeah, he can spin a ball real good. But, like, when you listen, yips and the human element, that's a thing, right? I don't know if there's any other way to explain how Clayton Kershaw is like the Mona Lisa. And then when he gets to the playoffs, he's just like the guy that rides on the back of the garbage truck. And, like, well, to, to be fair, you was really good in the division series Phenomenal. and you're a Cubs fan. He was great in the NLCS. I mean, yeah, he so sure was. He I was mean, a little too great for my liking my friend, but yes, he was really but good. He, but when he, you know, <laughs> but of course when he got to the world series, you know, the pit, the pitch tip in and, and all that stuff. And, and that's what people remember. And yeah, it happened in a world series. So of course that's what people remember, but Man, when with that kind of arm talent and the fact that he's already got the Tommy John out of the way. Oh yeah. If you're walking away from that guy because he had two bad games against one of the best lineups in baseball, uh, I just uh, 
I mean, the the more the longer this off season's gone on, the more uh, as a Cubs fan, the more enamored I've gotten with the idea of signing you, Darvish. You know, because if you the way he spins a baseball, like I've watched, I've watched highlights of him and watched him pitch in games, and when his baseball moves, it has like all this crazy movement, late movement, and I don't know if there's anybody in all of baseball that can spin a baseball like him. I think he's got like six or seven pitches. But listen, I wrote a serious it, article of how I thought if you got you Darvish, and this was serious, man, it might sound crazy, maybe not to you, but to people that are listening. I really believe that if you put you Darvish in a system to where he could be himself, that he could win a Cy Young. And here's, here's why I came up with oh. that conclusion. Because when he came from Japan to the United States, he had such a hard time dealing with his game prep because the pitching coaches here are so hands-on with the way that here can he's he's pitching his game but when he pitched in japan he got to make his own game plan he got to be himself and to do what he wanted and i really feel like if you darvish continues to pitch his velocity and spin the ball the way that he can if you would just put him in a system kind of like what Chris Basio did with Jake Arrieta when, you know, Boz was basically like, hey, we're not going to change how you feel. Like, do what's comfortable to you. We don't give a crap, and we're not going to try to change it. Like, a big part of me says, man, if you do that with you, Darvish, and just let him go out and pitch, pal, you might get, well, I think it was 2013 or 2014 where he struck out 277 guys and just mowed people down. That guy could come back. Oh, I, I mean, that guy's there. I don't think that guy has to come back. That guy's there. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that guy, and I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's like this perception of you, Darvish, is that uh, he's a pile of junk that once was. And I just, I don't know how people allow themselves to forget how dominant that guy is. And when you talk about spin rate and when you talk about movement, if he gets older and the velocity leaves, the movement won't. No, he can in still fact, spin a baseball. Right. And in fact, actually, that's going to get better. And if he makes a transition, as most really good pitchers do, to where they, you know, I think when they're younger, they're more throwers. And as they get older, they become pitchers. Uh, I think, honestly, I think that it'll be a different U Darvish in four years. But I think it'll still be a really good you Darvish in four years. Mm-hmm. I don't is, think he'll pitch the way in 2022. I don't think you Darvish is going to pitch the way he pitches in 2018, but I think that the results are going to be very similar. Um, I'm high on you Darvish. Um, and the fact that you can get a guy like that under $200 million on probably under $150 million. And, and like back to the, like for instance, for the Cubs, kind of why I think they really should go at you Darvish or another starter is uh, when you, you have got to fill the innings pitched for 2018 and 2019 and for 2020. And when you look at the Cubs system, I don't think that they have a guy far enough up in the system who you can look at and feel comfortable about them giving you innings in 2019 and in 2020 which is why it's all the more important, uh, you know, why it's all the more important to, uh, to project that now rather than to wait. 
to hope that some blue plate special falls in your lap next off off season or some blue plate special falls in your lap, you know, uh, come the summer. Oh yeah. Cause you would be getting uh, him for a value if you got him for one fifty, because what it took to sign Zach Granke was what? 210 million. You Darvish has more talent than Zach Granke. And I don't, I think that's a fact. I think so. Yeah. I think, I, I think so. And he's younger. I mean, he, he's younger and his stuff is just more projectable as he gets older. Mm-hmm. It, it just is. And like I said, the more and more this off season has gone on, the more and more enamored I have gotten with the idea of the Cubs signing you Darvish. And I, you know, and I said it on Twitter in a, an early standby is that you Darvish makes too much sense for the Cubs oh, yeah. and the Cubs make, and the Cubs make too much sense for you, Darvish, for this not to happen. Oh, yeah, because it's and a perfect honestly, fit. Honestly, my, my feelings, yeah, because it, it, this, after the World Series, after what happened, um, if, if you know anything about Japanese culture, uh, failure on that kind of stage is what keeps you, Darvish, awake at night. If you know anything about Japanese culture, if you know anything about the Japanese psyche when it comes to failure, when it comes to coming short, um, he wants to get back there. And I'm sorry, maybe I'm just not seeing the forest for the trees here, but you, Darvish, if he's serious about getting back to the World Series, it's not with the Minnesota Twins. It's probably not with the Milwaukee Brewers. It's with the Chicago Cubs or the New York Yankees or the Los Angeles Dodgers. And with the you know the the word of the day here, I feel like Pee Wee Herman's about to go crazy with luxury tax. I'm gonna <laughs> say it again, you know, like unless the unless you see the Yankees or the Dodgers suddenly dump a bunch of payroll and dump a bunch of money, I don't see how you Darvish goes anywhere else. That's I really true. don't. Yeah, they're primed to get him, and like I think what you said about the Japanese culture, I think you Darvish has all of those traits and then some because anything I've ever read about you Darvish tells of a guy that loves the sport of baseball, loves baseball. And you've got to trust somebody like that. Like if you need a guy that's going to go on a big stage, there's no doubt how much of a competitor and how just how much that you Darvish loves the game of baseball. But on top of that, yeah, it would be a perfect fit for Chicago because you put him in a system with, you know, a coach like Joe Madden and an upper management team like Jed and Theo. And then now um, I'm on the spot. Um, who's the pitching coach now? Uh, the one from Tampa Bay. Give me a Jim Hickey. Jim, Jim Hickey. Hickey, yeah. I mean, like, I don't think there would be a better spot for him just based on that alone. And I hope, honestly, um, wherever he goes, he does great. I just hope it's on the north side of Chicago, my friend. Um, right. I mean, and the fact not. is, I mean, they can slot him. They can slot him behind Kyle Hendricks, and they can slot him behind John Lester, and you know he can just go out and do his thing. Yeah, because there's you know? a lot of craziness in that Chicago Cubs starting rotation. Because you can give John Lester the ball in a big game, and Kyle Hendricks, and probably you Darvish is that starts and Jose Quintana. I mean, Jose Quintana is a guy, if you look at his war numbers on baseball reference or just his stats in general, you got a guy that consistently can give you 200 plus innings with a low three ERA. And he's a well, lefty, a just, good lefty. In the first time he gets to the playoffs, look at what he did last year for the Cubs in the division series. And then in, in the DS Quintana's a, <clears throat> you know, he's a big game pitcher. Mm-hmm. 
he's a big game pitcher. They have four, you know, with you Darvish, you know, they have four of them. And then, you know, who knows if Tyler Chow would get knocked out of Coors Field. I mean, I kind of have the sneaking suspicion that, you know, you remember a couple of years ago uh, when they, when the Cubs brought back Jason Hamill and when they, the year they won the world series and he was so good for five months. Oh, and heck like, yeah, he was really you know, like, good. like what, like I watched him pitch in April in Cincinnati and I was like, is that Jason Hamill or is that, or, or is that like, uh, Jake Arrieta in a Jason Hamill outfit. No like, kidding. what is going on here? Like, and I honestly think that the Tyler Chatwood. I think when we look back uh, next fall, and you look back at the year that Tyler Chatwood put together, I think I think as a Cubs fan, we're going to smile. I really think that he's going to have a big year, and I really, you know, I think that rotation's a strength, and I think that you build, you know, you build on your strengths. And, and, you know, I know I was going to come back talking to the Cubs, talking about the Cubs, and here we are doing it again. But <laughs> like I said, you Darvish, you Darvish just makes way too much sense for that not to happen. Yeah, I'd say it's a good spot for both teams. Um, you guys are listening to The Greatest Show on Dirt. Thank you for listening. Okay, so the Hall of Fame and the Steroid Air. So all of those, the four guys that got in, Jim Tomey, Vlad Guerrero, Trevor Hoffman, Chipper Jones. Um, but the a huge talk about this is Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. I think both went up 3%. And everyone, you know, has an opinion on this. And I don't think anyone has, like, a very, like, nonchalant opinion about this. If anyone has opinion, it's, like, very much don't let him in. Or it's very much, like, do let him in. Because if you don't, it's, like, a disgrace to baseball. Um so I'm, I guess I'm going to start with the most basic question to get this thing going. Should the Hall of Fame recognize Bonds and Clemens? And if they do, what effect would that have on the game, positive or negative? So for me, um, you know, this subject is really personal because I, I you know, grew up as a kid in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I grew up as a kid in the 90s, and my father, my baby boomer father, who brought me to the game of baseball, you know, he checked out on baseball after the strike. And I continue to watch WGN and be a Cubs fan, but it really wasn't until 1998. And it wasn't until that home run race that really, that's the moment in time, which I fell in love for baseball forever. I have very vivid memories of that summer of couldn't watch the game. It wasn't on WGN of watching ESPN and watching the ticker and just trying to see who was coming at bat next. And then we're just waiting. Cause they would cut in to Sosa's at bats. They would cut into McGuire's at bats. And I remember, you know, it brought my dad back to baseball. I mean, I remember in August, you know, like he's cutting the grass and I remember watching the game on WGN and like running out there, but like dad, Sosa's about to hit and, and you know, like him running inside and we just hope we didn't miss history. And that summer meant so much to me and it meant so much to my dad. And that's what brought him back to baseball. And I know that there's millions of stories out there just like that. Right. And when Bud Selig told us that we were witnessing a golden era of baseball, I believed him. I wanted to believe him. I was a kid and I just thought to myself, I'm so lucky to be a baseball fan today. 
to witness these historic, amazing things that are happening. And then as I got older, of course, as you get older, what happens, you get more jaded. And the Bond stuff happens, the Clemens stuff happens, the Brian McNamara stuff happens, the Balco stuff happens, the Mitchell Report happens. And it becomes really obvious at that point, it just hits you in the face that it was all fake. It wasn't real. And, uh, you know, for me, it was like finding out that Santa Claus wasn't real all over again. So it's personal for me. Like, it, it really... It really bugs me, um, Bonds and Clemens and the whole lot of them. But I think it's obvious that when you look at where they're at now, the percentage of the vote that they get, whether it's next year or the year after that or the year after that, those guys are going to get in. And I think that Bud Seelig's election kind of paved the way for that, right? You know, because it gave the people who wanted to vote for Bonds and Clemens an excuse to do so. And it gave the guys who didn't want to make the decision whether they were going to vote for Bonds or Clemens because they didn't want the way of the decision, an excuse to just go ahead and vote for him because Seeley got in and his biggest accomplishment was what happened when all, what happened in baseball while everybody was cheating. So if he's in, everybody's in, right? Mm-hmm. So like I said, I think it's it's really obvious that they're all gonna that they're all gonna get in and that's going to happen, and I'm not crazy about it. In fact, if it were up to me, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd actually like to see Bonds and Clemens and the rest of those guys eventually fall off the riders' the riders' ballot and let the players of the Veterans Committee deal with it, let their peers make that decision later on. But they're going to get in. And the Baseball Hall of Fame is a museum, and museums tell stories, they tell history. So I say you put them all in, you put them in a wing together with Bud Teelig in the center of that wing, and you just be brutally honest. And, and you, you cover the Mitchell Report, you cover Balco, you, you, you cover all of it. You cover Conseco's book, you, you know, lot by lot. You, you cover the congressional hearings in which Sammy Sosa gets up there and suddenly speak, forgets to speak English, mm-hmm. how to speak English. He loves, base, he, loves, he loves America very much. I love the baseball and then suddenly forgets how to speak English, you know, and, uh, you know, Rafi Palmar, Palmero with the wagging finger. And you just put all that stuff out there and you lay it out and you let the consumer, the visitor to the Hall of Fame, decide for themselves. And I think you have to be honest about it, was that these guys were liars and they were cheats. And they, dis- and they, they disgraced the game. They disgraced the game they loved. But they saved, but they saved the game they love in the process. Because without the home run race in 1998, and without Barry Bonds, and without everything that went on, I don't know that baby boomers like my dad would have ever come back to the game. I don't think so, because that season, and I mean, you told it better than probably I ever can. But that that season was magic because I remember, like, growing up. So I'm 34 right now. Um, so I I would watch Sports Center like in its like like in the 90s, like in its heyday, right? I love like 1990 Sports Center. And my daddy always right. worked construction. Booyah. Oh yeah. And so my Booyah. dad would always wake yeah. up at like real early because he always worked construction. And I'd set my alarm for 5 a.m. and I'd get up and watch Sports Center with him. 
And I just remember every season, you know, 91, 92, like, is someone going to break the home run record this year? Will Griffey break the home run record? And 1998 was this culmination of all of this excitement when you were a kid because, like, and I can just remember and, like, I can hold on to how it feels now when, like, every episode of Sports Center would, like, track Ken Griffey Jr. and Frank Thomas and what his pace looked like compared to Roger Maris. And then when 1998 happened, you were like, oh, my God, this is it. Like, they're chasing down Roger Maris's record, and it really actually might happen. And baseball, man, when all the strike stuff in 94 – and how the players were looked at with being like this greedy bunch of people and everyone walking off the field and not having a World Series and like what that did to fans, like it hurt because baseball was just this thing that like it's it's your summer activity, right? Like Bart Giamani wrote it best in his book where it's like, you know, the cold weather comes and like baseball's gone and like it's kind of like forsaken us. But every summer it comes back and we can be happy again. And then when it wasn't there, you're just like, oh, man, that was a strike. But then, yeah, 1998, man, was just magic, dude. One of the – probably the, maybe the best season I'll ever see in baseball. Possibly. I don't know. But – when you talk about voting Bonds and Clemens into the Hall of Fame, my number one concern is always with the fans, right? Like voting them in, like what's it going to do to future generations of baseball fans and players that come into the league and things like that. I just always – I care and love about baseball and like I want it to succeed and I would just die, right, if like Bonds and Clemens got in and it somehow hurt baseball. But what you said about having like this own separate wing and like really acknowledging it – Part of me thinks that if you were to put Bonds and Clemens into the Hall of Fame and just really, like, acknowledge and recognize the error for what it was, that it could some way be, like, this admission of, like, hey, like, we were wrong to, like, let this, you know, era go by and not recognize it. Because, you know, like, Bud Selig knew steroids were happening. The owners knew. Writers knew. but wouldn't write about it. And it's, like, it would just be, like, this way to just, like, like maybe this like cathartic thing to like work through it and say, Hey, we're going to vote these guys in because this is the era and it happened. And now we're moving on with all of our young stars and baseball's in a new and better place. And it almost seems like by not recognizing it in the hall of fame on another level, you're just continuing to sweep it under the rug and not recognize it. And yeah, like it's, it's, it hurts, you know, because I, you'll read articles and say, oh, well, you've got to let Bonds and Clemens in because, you know, back in the 60s, Willie Mays was giving guys amphetamines at his locker. Like, right. amphetamines are a little different than a Schedule Three controlled substance that guys that get caught selling steroids go to prison for. That's a big different thing when you're, like, changing someone's body and Barry Bonds had to get a new era cap three sizes bigger because his old one wouldn't fit because human growth hormone works really well but my biggest concern is always no matter no matter what with the fans and I'm not like gonna preach like this sanctity of baseball because Ty Cobb was a great or whatever listen baseball has its flaws and Bart Giamani would talk about it in the way he said it was so eloquent in his book about how there's no other sport on earth like baseball that tells the story 
of just the normal human being. And the steroid era, sure. you've got to recognize it because it does that, you know? The human struggle and, you know, leaving home and the perils that a person goes through and all they want to do is get back home. You have got to tell that baseball story, and I believe it does include putting them in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, in the day and age we're in, everyone has the information, and I don't believe that putting those guys in the Hall, yeah, it kind of sucks, because the record that, you know, Hank Aaron and Babe Ruth and Roger Maris had, like they kind of were surpassed maybe in a way that we don't want. But I have all the faith in the world that baseball's in a really good place. You know what I mean? With like the young stars coming up and the way it is and things like that. And, um, you know, the 98 season had to happen. For us to get to this point, um, 1998 had to happen. It, it, and, it, yeah. it saved the game of baseball. And like I said... They disgraced their game. They did something despicable. And, you know, but they saved baseball in the process. And, you know, when we talk about, which the great thing about baseball is it's been around forever. And when we talk about baseball, we talk about eras, right? The dead ball era and all that stuff. The steroid era is just another, it's just another bullet point on that timeline. And when it comes, you know, and like I said, and that's why I started off, with talking about how personal it is to me. Oh yeah. Um, because in saying that I've also come around to believe that they're going to get in. Um, they should be in and what better place to tell that story? Because what is the best antiseptic? You know, what is the best antiseptic? What is the best antibiotic? It's sunlight. You know, you just illuminate it. You illuminate it for what it was, and you spell it out. But you have to be clear and fair that, you know, because a, a lot of people will say, uh, you know, well, you know, Bud Selig had to know what was going on. The owners had to know what was a little going on. They, they, they let it go on, and that's just, so, that's just so awful, as if they're sanctimonious, you know, creatures. But they had a failing business. They had a family business, they had a family business model. They were just trying to hang on. And then you had this, you know, you had this windfall that happened that just fell in, you know, this windfall that, that happened that, that revitalized the game that led to those big TV contracts that we talk about that brought baseball back. And to sit here and say, well, Bud, you know, Bud Selig and the owner should have done something about it, then you're crazy. You're crazy if you believe that. You're crazy if you think that would have happened. You're crazy if you think that should have happened. So it's just, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, it is what it is. But it's important to acknowledge that it is what it is. Oh, yeah. And it's important. And it's important. You know, I believe it's important to uh, to not just lay this all at the feet of the players. 100%. But, but also... Um, you know, kind of, kind of off subject here, but it, it falls on here. Like one of the things that drives me crazy when I hear, uh, you know, the guys who actually do get to vote on this stuff talk about like, well, you know, Bonds and Clemens were Hall of Famers before they cheated, so that's why they're on my ballot. Like, really? You know that for a fact? Like, that's just crazy. That, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. That oh well, they were. You know, they were they were Hall of Famers before they were cheaters. So I'm going to put them in the Hall of Fame. I mean, but, so was Shoeless Joe Jackson before, you know, they had the right. Black Sox scandal. Right. Like that. But it's a whole career, right? Like, that's what we're talking about. Right. 
Right, exactly. So, I mean, you know, they're going to get in, and there's going to be a reckoning when they do. But the other side of it, too, for the Joe Morgans of the world to write sanctimonious letters about the sanctity of the Hall of Fame in baseball, I'm like, dude, you were a part of the Big Red Machine. Like, you guys had the Big Red Juice, and you were popping amphetamines like it was like it was 1999. Oh, yeah. So I really don't, you know, like, really, Joe Morgan, spare me. Like, um, you know, you hit in the lineup before or after Pete Rose. So really, Joe Morgan, spare me about the sanctity of baseball. Yeah, they had coffee in the you dugout really, that was, like, unleaded and then leaded. And that leaded is what you right. drink. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, honestly. And the thing is, back to talking about eras, throughout the history of baseball, guys have always cheated, man. Guys have always tried to cheat. It was the spitball. It was, you know, foreign substances. It was cork in the bat. It was amphetamines. It was steroids. You know, like, it's all of it. And to sit here and act like steroids are any different than the rest of it is, is, I just, I think it's a fool's errand. Uh, because like anything else, cheating evolved. Oh, hundred percent. Now, two things. One, I didn't realize you were such an amazing poet, man, with the antiseptic analogy. I loved it. So now you're the professor and the poet, but two people don't realize (laughs) that like it, like Bud Selig, like didn't just sit around and watch it happen. Like Bud Selig started this initiative to clean it up, you know, because like when you're dealing with like the players oh. union, you just can't upright and be like, okay, we're going to start testing people now. Like there are processes right. in place to protect both the league and the players. Right. And it was Bud Selig who initiated this Mitchell report and started it and really like, you well, know, probably. Oh, that might, that's a little bit of revisionist history. Is it? Is, I, well, I, seem to rem- I, I seem to remember, I seem to remember a bunch of like Jim Bunning and a bunch of senators and congressmen who used to be baseball players threatening to take away baseball's uh, antitrust clause if Bud didn't clean the game up. Ah. Well, maybe I didn't know that portion of it, but still, I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that's why they had those hearings and, you know, those hearings in Congress. That's what it was about. That was the federal government's involvement in baseball was that, you know, to this day, Major League Baseball is the the only corporation or entity to ever get an antitrust uh, waiver. You know, they're the only they're the only entity, company, or anything in the United States that has an exception to the antitrust to antitrust laws. So, uh, and for Major League Baseball, that's a really big deal, and maintaining that is a really big deal. So, I mean, I I seem to remember that. I don't. Think it was Bud just deciding to go off all cowboy. So Bud, so Bud Selig had to do it. So he was forced into it. Oh yeah, I mean baseball was forced into it, and 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 then also, I mean, everything the dam started to break, and they had to get in front of it, and they had to spin it. But also too, I mean, Bud Bud just couldn't walk around with a bunch of cups and needles and start taking blood and making people see. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the players had to negotiate it, and a, a big part of that time was. Spinning the public sentiment against the players, which is where I think you've gotten to the thing with Clemens and Bonds, because it was spun against the players then. It went like that full 360 to get the players to come to the table to negotiate testing and to negotiate testing penalties. And the thing is, it never spun back around. All the focus and the hot lamp just stayed on the players. 
where it is to this day when we talk about, you know, when we talk about uh, like ruining you know, the, the game, whole thing. right? It goes on the players and not necessarily right. because, like, you know, really in a way, like the play. I mean, I don't. How can I say this? Really, Bud Selig and the way baseball was run, like the precedent was set by the league and the players. Like, we're just doing what everybody else did. So, like, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Is that, like, not enough of the blame is getting put on Bud Selig well, and the owners? And, and think about it, too. You have Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, who, you know, one of the best hitters uh, ever and one of the best pitchers ever. Mm-hmm. And certainly, one of, if not the best, one of the best of the era. Mm-hmm. And they're watching guys with marginal talent or maybe baseball talent, but not great talent like Sammy Sosa, for instance, cheat and get paid a lot of money, a lot more money than they were getting paid. And I think specifically with bonds, I think, you know, he just decided, Hey, I'm 38 years old. I haven't gotten paid like that. You know, Sammy Sosa is making $18 million a year. I'm making $9 million a year and I'm four times the ball player that guy ever was. 100%. But he's, but he's cheating. So I'm going to cheat too. Yeah. Barry sat and in that I'm, 1998 and w- season and watched it happen knowing that he was a superior player, but those are the guys breaking, to, you know, Roger Maris's record. So what happened, you know, uh, Barry got big and Barry got paid. I think he, I think, uh, he still has the largest single season contract of, of any player uh, when he got the $36 million one-year payday from the Giants. So, I mean, you know, Barry got big, Barry got paid. And same thing with Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens signed, you know, two more big contracts at the end of his career. Um, Because, you know, he had gotten paid, but he hadn't gotten paid like that. Oh, yeah. And, 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 And who paid these guys? Who paid these guys? Who signed those checks? You know, it was the owners. Yeah. And they knew what was up. They knew what was going on. But it was turned in the cash register, and that's what mattered. So, like I said, you know, it's easy to blame. You know, it's easy to, to be mad at Barry Bonds because he was a real jerk, and he was. And it's easy yeah. to blame Roger Clemens. And I think that's most people. I mean, Andy Pettit, you know, Andy Pettit cheated. Nobody cares. Because Andy Pettit wasn't a jerk about it, and when he was caught, he he said, "I I'm caught," you know. But everybody, you know. But then you bring up Rafael Palmero, nobody can stand him because he cheated and he was a real jerk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has as much to do with it as anything. But you know, it's a it's a very it's an emotional argument, and anytime if you find yourself making an emotional argument, you probably find yourself on the wrong side of the argument. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess, John, I guess we'll call it a day, man. Um, All right, man. Thanks for being on the show. Um, Is there anything else you want to add before we get off? Any other points you got? Um, You know, just that with all of this, uh, you know, we discussed about the Hall of Fame and what we discussed about, you know, just this podcast is that is, this is what I love about baseball. Baseball is a conversational game. And that's what makes it different than any other sport is that when you go to a baseball game, you're there to watch a game, but you're also there to have a conversation. 
And that's what makes it different than football, basketball, or anything else you might spend your time watching. And uh, thanks for having me on the show, man. Uh, thanks for the conversation. I love talking baseball. And uh, to anybody listening to this, man, thanks for listening. Uh, and if you agree or, or disagree with me or, or or whatever, just reach out at, uh, you know, at Hey Tweet John, J-O-N, and uh, just let me know, man, because I will talk baseball with anybody. Dude, right on, man. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And um, you guys are listening to the greatest show on dirt. And have a great weekend.